broadcasting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet. You are listening to... And I'm your host, Alpha Mike, episode number 95. On our Wise Guy series, we will be speaking on the subject of disorganized crime. And the question that we have to ask ourselves today, are they disorganized because they're stupid and don't know what they're doing? Or are they disorganized by design? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, you can. It's RaiderCopNation.com. It's that easy. Scroll down there and you will see the different icons and social networks and how to get in contact with us. We appreciate people joining the nation day in and day out, listening to the podcast. And we know that there are avid listeners out there with a good set of ears. Our job is to educate you in the realm of law enforcement with different avenues, as we've discussed before, and different platforms, from roll call to the wacky left and how they want to disarm and disband police to the Wise Guys series that we're talking here today, plus a lot of other things. We have concentrated up to now in the Wise Guys series on organized crime, which is the Italian mafia, very well organized with different military structured ranks from boss, underboss, consulary, capo, soldier, associates, and how they divvy up money and slice it up and how they have a commission from different members of other families and they make decisions it's a ruling body but now today we're going to enter a realm where that structure doesn't exist or does it all right well i'm not going to bore you anymore let's hit our leadership quote of the week Leadership is about vision and responsibility, not power. Seath Berkeley. And what we are discussing today has a lot to talk about the ability of leadership and who exactly has the power. It becomes very, very vague. But is it by design or it's just... That's the way they operate. It was a fascinating research. I wanted to first go out and start on this specific subject. But during the research, I ran into this specific case, which fascinated me because it breaks me up into three different realms for the Wise Guys series. So I am uh, truly excited about that. All right, on some other issues I want to talk about, as we know, uh, uh, a great hero has uh, died in uh, the rank and file of the New York City Police Department, Detective Lewis 
called Louis Alvarez. And he was taken from us by cancer. He was a first responder in going into the World Trade Center. And like many, many uh, law enforcement officers, they have succumbed to these injuries that they really obtained during their response at the World Trade Center. Louis was no exception. But we know him for being so brave and courageous uh, days before he died, testifying in front of Congress because the fund for the World Trade Center, uh, the survivors, is running out. And the dirty politicians at the Dirty Swamp in Washington are playing games with that pool of money. And so Louis went out there and pretty bad conditions, but he was focused on the mission. And so I, I, I want to give a shout out to not only Louis and his heroism, his family, his NYPD family as well, but for all those that are going through this, you know, a lot of people say, well, we had X amount of people die during the terrorist attacks of 9-11 but how many have died after the attacks as a result to the attacks? And we kind of put to the side and not really focus that that number is growing daily. Another reason why we should not be forgetting. So Louis Alvarez, a hero. And we will mention more about Louis Alvarez and other episodes uh, as we move along. It's it's always painful when you see law enforcement brethren die. Just recently, I was surprised. At my home, I fly an American flag, and I've mentioned on prior episodes that the Homeowners Association told me that I was flying a, I um, uh, forgot what they called it, historical or... Uh, seasonal flag or whatever cockamamie uh, letter they wrote me, whatever the official term was. But it was my police American flag that we used for mourning. And as you know, a little bit of a pissing contest, if we're going to uh, display the flag or not. But uh, we did come to some agreement, and I, I can't fly it. And I have no problem with me flying it. Um, but they would like me to fly it for specific things like someone from my past agency or for the state of Florida instead of just flying it in general. So you got to meet compromise with compromise, and I understood that. So I do fly all glory as well, and I'm proud of the fact that I can do that as as well, and I do. And um, But recently, somebody... I guess in passing, had seen that police flag flying in front of my house. And they haven't seen it in a while. And uh, I went to the mailbox to open up, you know, get my mail out of the, out of my uh, mailbox in front of my house. And somebody neatly folded a police American flag in my mailbox. And um, I guess they didn't want it. They found it. I don't know what the particulars are to it, but somebody... Uh, thoughtful enough said, hey, 
I know you fly this here. I know it means something to you and to many like you. So I'm going to give it to you. Don't know who it is. But see, God is good. All right. It's time to stir the pot and get ready. It's time for the meat and potatoes. Episode number 95, Disorganized Crime. Today we speak about three specific groups that partnered on one mission, one objective, and how it ended up turning out. We're talking about the Russian mob. We're talking about Cubans. And we're talking about Colombians. All three meet specifically for something and it turns into almost a disaster. But what it does for law enforcement, it tells them a clear, clear story on what's going on. It is something that becomes mind-boggling. But criminals flock together and they make money regardless of who you are. My research with the Russian organized crime led me to this specific story. Now, I have known about this specific story in my uh, trials in Miami in law enforcement. I know who these individuals were. It was just something that I didn't follow much. And I can say a little bit about the suspect or the subject we're going to talk about today. And what our our views in law enforcement at the time was about this specific individual. The first character that we have coming up is Ludwig Tarzan Feinberg, born 1958 in Odessa, Russia. He ends up immigrating to the United States sometime in the 1980s and he does a brief stint in the Israeli military because he leaves Russia and he's, he immigrates to Israel first. Now let's pause right there and look at, just briefly, because we are going to do a Wise Guy series on the Russian mob where we kind of break it down a little bit more for you kind of understand where they come from. Just like we did with the Italian Costa Nostra, we spoke about their early beginnings as well. The Russian criminal element starts during the time of the Tsar. So we're going way back. And it was in Russia at that time was the have and have nots. The people that didn't have were treated subhumanly. So they organize to conduct criminal behavior to survive. 
to eat, to produce. They would click together as a criminal enterprise, and they would give an oath not to snitch each other out and to share the profits in a given, let's say, community. The reason for this is because they were fighting the elitist, which was the czar, and they were doing everything in their power to undermine that operation. Of course, the czar is toppled, and Lenin takes over. Lenin becomes a, a victim of these criminal groups where they ended up robbing him. Of course, the sentence for a lot of them was execution at that point. But they continued to grow. Even though we changed the ruling head of Russia from czar to communism, communism and Lenin, they continued to basically do the same thing. Then Lenin dies, Stalin takes over, and we're met with the Second World War. Stalin agrees to many of them that are in jail. The jail now has become their universal university system for thievery. Now, another background which a lot of people fail to realize, especially when we're speaking on the term of Russian mafia, the high level of education. Up to this point that I'm talking about, we're at Stalin now, and in or before the beginning of the Second World War, they had received a pretty high education uh, as, let's say, peasants. They still knew functions of reading and writing and so forth. So they were educated. Under Stalin, he agrees to let a lot of them, millions of them out of prison, as long as they signed up for the war effort. Well, they saw the opportunity. It was a 50-50. Either we survive and we steal and plunger, or we die. But we don't die here in prison. So a lot of them did do that service. Of course, they were betrayed at the end of their term of service for the, for the country in the Second World War, thinking that they would be rewarded. Stalin brought them all back to prison. He incarcerated millions and eliminated millions, as we know history tells us. But this criminal enterprise continued to flourish, become educated, become sophisticated, become engineers, doctors. The, the level of education is very high and superior. These are not your ordinary thugs that don't know how to read and write here. These know more than the next guy, making them a lot more dangerous. Of course, communism falls in the 1980s under the stiff hand of Ronald Reagan and his policies. The Soviet Union crumbles. It falls into economic disarray. And there was no system in place other than the system that had existed since the beginning of the czar with the thieves. They were in partnership with the government always, even during the era of Lenin and Stalin. Remember, Stalin made agreements with them that they could you know, serve their country 
even though he broke his agreement. But they continued always. Corruption was part of their business, part of their society, part of their fabric. So they continued to to operate with the government. So when communism falls, the leadership falls, the uh, economic stability of Russia or the Soviet Union falls apart. This is humongous. We're talking about not only Russia, other countries that are affected like Romania and so forth, uh, 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 East Germany, all these countries that were under the Soviet Union start to crumble. Well, this criminal influence, they worked in many elements and in many fields. Now we're going to start talking about the uniqueness of how the Russian mob operates. They're not like the Costa Nostra here in America where they have a family and structure. We have spoken about that. And basically in uh, the Italian criminal justice, uh, criminal organizations, excuse me, they just have their hand in anything they can, and they will extract money from it, whether it's the garbage business, construction, or um, uh, prostitution, or uh, even drugs that they're not supposed to be in, but they are in, but don't say anything, act like you didn't, you know, that kind of thing. So in the Italian mafia, they have their hands and everything, and the money goes up the chain. So, but here... And the Russian mob, they are specific specialists in specific areas. They are not necessarily intertwined. If you're over there, let's say in banking, that's what you do. You're not going to cross over here to my syndicate, which is, let's say, arms. And I sell arms. Or I might be in a drug trade. Or I might be in human trafficking. So they have specific areas of specialty that they kind of stick to. Now, of course, if you become uh, a leader, we'll say a leader, again, the leadership is not identified like it is in other criminal justice, criminal organizations, excuse me again. They are more based on, did you have prison time? Or what we used to call ring time. So these people that have gone to jail for lengths of time, they brandish themselves with tattoos, and that identifies them as being the criminal element. And they're called VOR, V-O-R. And those people become and get a leadership status within the Russian mob, who you uh, did apprenticeship under, kind of dictates who you are in the thick of things. During the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of Russian Jews were sent to Israel and America. So a lot of Russian mobsters hid behind them with phony papers saying that they were also Jews in order to get out and escape and come to America. But primarily, the Russian mob in America is Jewish. And a lot of people, 
don't know that either. Some, of course, identify with nothing but who they are, but their family or their heritage could be that. Not all, as I said. So now they start migrating to America, specifically Brooklyn and Brighton Beach or Coney Island, where they named that little Odessa. And, of course, there you start to see how they start working. Uh, when the Russian mob started migrating to New York City, they didn't show up like they do on TV, you know, brand new uh, Mercedes Benzes and $5,000 suits, and I run this joint. No, they humbled a lot of them themselves and started working with the Italian mafia and doing specific works for them, whether it was car theft rings arsons and so forth, and learning the operation, how they did it in America, of course, to later capitalize it on it for themselves. So they become a force to be reckoned with uh, within the organized crime circle. Now, this specific individual that we talked about, Ludwig Tarzan Feinberg, he finds his way in the... the part of the ninth in the 1990s and he wants to branch out of Brighton Beach Brooklyn and he heads towards Miami Florida now he probably got the the, the nod he could go ahead and and go and he lands in Hialeah Florida specifically purchasing probably with mob money a strip joint by the name of Porky's now, for a lot of law enforcement officers from Miami-Dade, especially the northern end of Miami-Dade, they know what Porky's is very well, especially if you were from my era. It was commonplace that a lot of law enforcement officers, after their tour of duty, would go to this strip joint called Porky's. Of course, they would take off their gun belts, put them in their personal cars, because back then you didn't have take-home cars, take off their uniform shirt, throw that in the back trunk, and go ahead and go in with uniform pants, patent leather shoes, walk in there, and enjoy the scenery. And Ludwig here purchases this piece of property. The property at one time was owned by Albert um, San Pedro, which was known as the Cuban godfather at the time, and mostly because other C Cuban mafia members allowed him to have that title, took a lot of the stress away from them. But Porky's was a haven already prior to Ludwig showing up here. Uh, Albert San Pedro was uh, sentenced and uh, later was out on bond and, and, and fled and, and went to uh, the Dominican Republic and nobody knows where he is and blah, blah, blah. But that's another story. We're not, we're not going to talk about that. Get him back to Ludwig. He gets in there. He takes over that business. He takes over a lot of the criminal enterprise that was there already. He meets a gentleman by the name of Juan Almeida. Now, he is identified in a lot of articles as a Colombian, but he's not. He's Cuban. Juan Almeida, born 1957. He has connections in a lot of what organized crime is in Miami. Ludwig needs that hook, just like they did when they first got to uh, Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. 
They got to find out how the criminal operation works in Miami. He partners with uh, Juan Almeida. So shortly after that, they start talking about getting bigger and more powerful. And they need not only muscle, but they need to get involved in uh, organized crime activities such as drugs that necessarily isn't just easy. You know, you just don't go to the neighborhood drug guy and knock on his door and tell him, sir, can you tell me who your connections are? Because I'm, I'm trying to build a business. It's not going to work like that. So they contact Nelson, Tony Yesto Guerrado, and he has been identified by several pieces of or articles and pieces out there as being trained by Cuban intelligence forces and Russian intelligence forces. Came to this country during the Mar Mariel boat lift, that would be in the 80s, and um, arrested various times, six, seven times, carrying a, pos a possession of a firearm and um, um, all these other kind of low profile uh, charges, nothing major at this time. But he was identified as knowing how to deal with the intelligence. So no coincidence that when one old lady here is now to make trying to make contact with major cartel leaders in Colombia that for Ludwig, this is what we're doing for Tarzan. They find out Tony's got to know. Well, Tony knew. Tony knew members of the Cali Colombian cartel. And he arranged a lot of the deal workings that we're going to talk about in a second. Again, he was identified as being trained highly but really no proof of any of this a lot of people are just saying he he just fits the role so they kind of threw him in the role regardless of the fact the mario boatlift people that hit miami in the 80s were criminal criminals that fidel castro emptied out out of mental institutions and jails and he littered on the Jimmy Carter's watch, a hundred over a hundred thousand here in Miami. Oh, in Miami, he he littered them into their streets, and not only were they some crazy, not only were some of them gangsters and crooks and thieves, some of them did have military intelligence, and of course, all that was a bigger plot. So. Nestor Tony Yester, he gets into this role now. And, you know, they're, they're getting involved with the Callies and they're trying to capitalize. Now, this is the Russian mindset. They don't want to do what the rest of the criminal organizations are doing. I don't want to play mule and move package A to pack to location B. I'm not into that. Oh, that's what the other guys are doing and they're getting paid for it. But that's their game. I want to know how to control all of the movement and how not to be detected by law enforcement. So they start playing around 
with some ideas and in their conversations, the Tarzan makes note that he has the ability through his connections in Russia to basically buy any military armament that he needs, whether it's a tank, surface-to-air missile, and even at some points, we're talking about nuclear weapons. And, of course, helicopters and submarines were thrown in the mix as well. Well, immediately, our two Cubans start working on this to capitalize. Tony Yester, he makes contact with the Cali Colombian cartel and says, we can produce a submarine. Now, there was talks about going back and forth about this, but nothing heavy. Why? Because Tony Yester was a little doubtful that Ludwig, and he wasn't really sure if Ludwig was pulling or yanking on a chain here. So they started off with some sales of helicopters, military helicopters. Well, they went to Russia and they toured military bases with military personnel on there. They were saluting them as they walked in. They were doing a little window shopping. And, of course, top Russian generals and admirals and retired ones were doing the fire sales because the, the government had crumbled. Uh, military personnel were getting less than $150 a month. They were sucking wind, and a lot of these people that had leadership, they said, well, we're not going to go under. Like, we're going to get involved. Remember what their society is, and we're going to fight the government, and we're going to play Robin Hood here. So steal from the rich and provide to the poor. So that's, that's their story, and they're sticking to it. So they started buying helicopters. They specifically, uh, the Cali cartel, brought 30 of them, and there are various photographs of them posing with these uh, helicopters. So the sales went through. There was a direct line on how to send it to them and how to get them. And as I started to look more and more into this research, I asked myself a specific question. How can the United States government not realize that we've got a fire sale over at the old Soviet Union, a.k.a. Russia, and everything but the kitchen sink is up for sale. They must have known, and they led a blind eye to what was going on for whatever reason. And the sales continued. They got back into the submarine sale. The price went as high as 30, uh, one point was 100 million. They talked down to 15 million. And... They actually toured the inside. There was a lot of hesitation on whether the Colombians actually wanted the submarine. They, being as powerful as the Colombians were with all the money they had, they just said, how do we go and buy a Russian military submarine? It's going to be transported all the way here to Colombia for us. They got to pay $500,000 per man that's going to move this this boat, this submarine, and no one's going to notice. So, as you can imagine, there was some hesitation, but they went through with the deal because 
uh, Tony Yester kept on reminding our friends over in Cali, you can move 30 to 40 kilos and uh, or more, tons, tons, excuse me, 30 or 40 tons of kilo on a submarine. And so that was impressive numbers. And uh, you're going at the depth of nobody can see you. This is what we want. And they gave a down payment of $10 million. But while all this was going on, the United States federal government was investigating Juan Almeida for certain rackets in illicit drugs like marijuana and cocaine. As a result, there was an indictment. And everybody he was hanging around with, like Tarzan and Tony Yester, got caught up in the indictment too. Everybody ran for it, and Yester kept the down payment, the $10 million. He said, well, I'll hold on to this. There's no, what's no point in giving it back. And I'll even say, it's my share. And he took off. Well, the Colombians weren't too happy about it, of course. And uh, they pressured Almeida to start talking where Yester might be. He had no idea. They wanted to know where Yester's family was so they could kill them. But Yester didn't have, he didn't care. He didn't, remember, this guy was a Cuban from from the Marielle Boatlift era. So any family members that he had in Miami really didn't even know who the hell they were anyway. It didn't bother him at all. So that really didn't go anywhere. So Cali was out $10 million. The submarine issue never happened, although the Colombians did later start using submarines and manufacturing their own. But that's another story out of an area called Tumaca, Colombia. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in another Wise Guys series. So the Colombian cartels actually did end up using submarines. And God only knows if they're still using it today. But they didn't use it as dramatic as using a former mil- Russian military submarine. Oh, boy. That I get your front page maybe on the on the New York Times, and then we could tie it to Trump somehow. Somehow we gotta f- we'll figure it out, but we'll try to somehow pin it on Trump. That would be a good a good start. So there's the fire sale going on in Russia. They're moving heavy amounts of military armament. The Russian mob is controlling. Everything that's going in and out of Russia, they have made um, a lot of areas that they have scrambled to in Europe and North America, South America. Of course, in the United States, they landed in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. And now we have Tarzan running Miami. Now, during my era in law enforcement, there was talk about who he was and all that. But a lot of people that knew something more about organized crime said, he's not all that in a bag of chips. And I believe that the reason they were saying it was they were trying to identify who these guys were based on the Italian mafia model. 
And the Russian model is totally different because you don't walk around flashing rank. As I said earlier, you're identified by your criminal past. How long have you been in prison, especially at the Gulag, you know, prison over in Russia, and the tattoos specifically that identify you as a high-ranking member. Some of these guys, they have an actual tattoo of a jail cell on their person or their body basically says that they will run their operation from prison and be perfectly content with it. So their mentality, their structure and everything was unique to them. It was not unique to United States law enforcement. And it was done based on your specialty. What did you bring to the table to enrich all of them? As a result, they are more elusive to law enforcement, more difficult to um, get involved with them or infiltrate them. Now, the United States government has, the DEA has infiltrated the Russian mob, and they've been pretty successful at it. But the, the question is, have they put a dent in the Russian mob? Now, I know Hollywood likes to portray the Russian mob as being sadistic and this and that, and they always put this crazy Russian guy in every movie. They are more prone to violence maybe than the other because of their structure system. You don't have to check with 10 people to get an okay. You might have to check with one. Oh, you might not have to check with him at all. Just let him know what you did later on. And that's what makes them a little bit more of a looser cannon. Not that their cannons sound louder than anybody else's. They are learning the American system. They continue to learn it. They work well with organized crime. But they give a resemblance that they are disorganized. In this operation, they wanted to purchase a submarine from the Russian military, sell it to the Cali Colombian cartel for a price tag of $15 million. They started at $100 million. It was talked down. But the, in cross-examination, it was believed that yesterday the, the price had really gone down to $5.5 million. Russians were willing to negotiate. They were hungry. And uh, Yester said 30. It's some pocket money, you know, eh, for shits and giggles. And uh, so he had, um, he had big pockets, my friend. He goes on the run after uh, Ludwig does a little stint in jail. He does 36 or 30-something months. Some people start to scratch their head. How did he get away with that? Hmm. And he later is deported back to uh, Israel, I believe it is. And then uh, back to uh, America, he sneaks into Panama. He's running a, a strip joint in Panama. He gets arrested there. He escapes out of the Panamanian prison. Don't ask me. And he ends up going back to uh, going to Cuba where he knew he would get detained and arrested. And, of course, 
Cuba would send them back to the point of origin, which is Russia. So return to sender stamp on his forehead, and he is currently resigning, resigning in Russia. Almeida is charged with everything under the sun dealing with drugs, has his own legal affairs. But our friend uh, Nelson Tony Yester has been seen in areas of Spain and areas of South Africa. There's a documentary they're doing now. These gentlemen, it's called the Operation Ordesa. It's on Showtime, one of those uh, shows. <coughs> Excuse me. And they they want to interview everybody, of course. They first made contact with Tarzan Ludwig here in Panama in prison. He blew them off. But they really were serious about this documentary. They let her talk to Almeida. And, uh, you know, they tell him, do you think we can get uh, Yester to talk to us? They go, if you ever find him, he'll never talk to you. But he ends up talking to them in the documentary. Documentary's a little hyped up. Uh, this whole thing is a little bit more hyped up than what it really is. And in the criminal world, you have to have ring time. And that demonstrates who you are in that criminal society. A lot of these guys really didn't have ring time. They did crime, of course, but not to the statute of some other people. This was their biggest caper, and they failed at it. So the we go back to Tarzan. Of course, he's in Russia. He's still operating, doing his thing. So he did have a lot of know-how how the Russian military or the Russian mob military mentality is. A lot of guys left the Russian military and ended up in the mob. So he kind of knows how to deal in that. Will he ever surface back in America? Of course, he's not, a, he's not allowed back here again. But as he said in his interview, our criminal enterprise has no borders. So maybe he's friends with Hillary. I don't know. But he did demonstrate that they're willing to go any place and any any time to make a buck. It's an interesting story because there's a lot of missing components to this story, such as who was the contact from Cali, Colombia. Now, of course, the DEA did pull, and, and, and it's in the... It's in the um, indictment. But the powers that be in Cali, which were the the Rodriguez brothers, they had to approve the submarine scheme. And um, so if, if anything, they might have not made it big in the criminal underworld enterprise, but they did get the attention of the bigwigs in the criminal underworld enterprise. So put them somewhat on the map. Today, Yester is still a fugitive, wanted by the FBI. The FBI has little to no hopes to ever finding him. He's elusive. Why is the FBI, if you see a lot of their interviews, and we'll post them on our show notes, they kind of like written them off. Why did you write them off? Maybe some of the stories are true about him being a trained intelligence spy 
from G2, which is the element in Cuba, to the Russian element? Or is he just smarter than everybody else and can live in South Africa under an assumed alias as a Mexican businessman and nobody's smart enough to figure this out? So a lot to this case, they do have a documentary. It's called uh, Operation Odessa. And um, it's fascinating take because it's going to take us into the real Russian mob, the real Cuban mafia, and of course, the cartels, Medellin and Cali, and what else is out there in Colombia. We're only talking about certain individuals. They took their swing at the, the ball and they missed. They could have had a huge hit. It was a great idea, but it fumbled. It fumbled because maybe it wasn't their time. Maybe it was someone else's time. Who knows? You've been listening to episode number 95, Disorganized Crime, from the Wise Guys series of Raider Cop Nation. As always, it is my honor and pleasure to be your host on Raider Cop Nation. Continue to keep yourself in prayer. Continue to pray for your family because it's most important for your survival. Continue to pray for your community. And most importantly, continue to pray for your law enforcement agency that serves you. Without them, we're nothing. But paramount of paramounts, continue to pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, and I'm out. And guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home.